Hive on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 Community Radio, the a poetry show with the buzz in it. And um, we are alive now uh, in David Allen Sullivan's living room, and we're doing a pre recorded show to celebrate uh, the Portugal Tribune. Uh, published by Cabrillo College. Not only are we rich with writers in Santa Cruz, but we also have at least two vibrant and important journals here, both Catamaran and the Porter Gulch Review. So I'm in David's living room, which is very cozy, um, with David Sullivan and um, Victoria Banales and Jennifer Lager and Robin White Turtle. Listen, listening, listening, mm-hmm. and Travis DeYoung. Is that right? Did yep. I get everyone's name right? Okay, Jennifer. Excellent. Um, and the poets, all poets here, I think, are gonna um, read the poetry that was in the that will appear in the new spring issue of Portugal Review, and which they will read and celebrate on May 18th at the Horticulture Center at Cabrillo. Um, so the best way, I think, to introduce this really fantastic um, journal is to hear some poetry in it. So I wanted to start with um, Victoria Banales. Uh, she has a PhD in literature and feminist studies from UCSC, and she currently teaches English at Cabrillo, where um, she was a recipient of the Cabrillo 2016-17 EOPS Instructor of the Year Award. And her poetry and prose has appeared in various anthologies and journals. I happen to know she's currently working on a novel. And she makes the best tres leches ever <laughs> and lives currently in Watsonville. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So the poem I'm going to read is called Body Parts. And like you said, it's it's in the Porter Gulch Review Spring Edition. And it's autobiographical. So, I used to think I was ugly. This one sure is ugly. Ugly like her grandma, says my uncle, carefully inspecting me when I was seven years old. I run into the bathroom and cry. I used to hate my skin color. India, my third grade classmates shout, too dark, darker than a midnight sky. I didn't know midnight skies were beautiful with their twinkling diamond stars. I used to feel ashamed about my toes. Old lady toes, old lady toes, a fifth grade classmate jeers, pointing to my sun-baked wrinkly toes while others turned to stare. I learned to avoid open-toed sandals. I used to feel embarrassed about my feet. Too patona, big-footed, complains my mom, frustrated at having to buy new shoes year after year, my feet elongating to a size eight and a half much too large for a 12-year-old Mexican girl. Upper-class Chinese women once crushed and bound their feet for the sake of beauty. Crippled and disabled, they hobbled for the rest of their lives. I think about this. I used to deplore my legs. Too thin, my older cousin laments, shaking her head. Que lastima que no saliste piernuda, pero mira nada más. No tienes piernas, you have no legs, she bemoans filling me in on a little secret. Did you know that wearing leg warmers inside dark stockings or tights can make your legs look fuller? Instead, I pair dresses and skirts with mid to high rise boots. I used to feel uncomfortable about my breasts. Double D, double D, my sister teases, even though I'm only a size C. I hunch my shoulders and wear tight fitting minimizer bras alongside loose t-shirts and blouses. I used to loathe my nose. This one's big-nosed, Narizona, my grandmother says, blaming it on my father's genes. My cousin chimes in, Bruja, witch, he jeers. In high school, my sister's friend gets a nose job prior to her quinceañera. 
Everybody says she looks prettier. I think about this. I used to dislike my behind. Too damn flat, says my aunt. No tienes sentaderas. You have no butt, she opines with furrowed brows, scrutinizing my rear. I tie a sweatshirt around my waist. No legs and no butt. How very distressing and confusing to find out you are missing key body parts. And then, in my twenties, 600 miles away, the voices begin to dissipate and drift away. Like parting clouds, my body parts. I realize I have toes, feet, and legs. Useful for standing, walking, bicycling, climbing, running, and dancing. I have a behind, and my built-in cushion is very comfy to sit on. With my nose, I pass air into my lungs, smell the sweet, sickly evening scent of jasmine, and taste the spicy green enchiladas, savoring the roasted tomatillos and peppers. Years later, after I give birth, my breasts provide life nourishment for my beautiful baby boy. I think about this. When the hot summer months arrive, I wear shorts and skirts, bare-legged. I open my chest like a blooming flower and learn to stand a little taller. I store my winter boots in the closet and wear open-toed sandals and flip-flops, letting my toes wiggle free. I bake in the warm sun, my coffee-colored skin radiant and glistening. I realize dark night skies are beautiful with their twinkling diamond stars. Oh, <laughs> That's really lovely. I love how all the commentary on the body is from other voices and then the voice in the speaker and the poet that you said was autobiographical gets to actually be in the body. That's really lovely. Thank Who was you. the process of that, like writing that? Did you intend to make like such a... Did, did you think it would go on so long? Like at first, did you think it would just be about one body part? I didn't. I wrote it um, after a class that I taught. We were reading a book. It's called Gabby, A Girl in Pieces. And I asked my students to write, to do a creative writing project. And she, the whole book is about the the character having a lot of issues with her body image. And a lot of family members putting her down for her weight. So I decided to just take the challenge and join in with the students. So that's how it came about, because I realized I have this too. You know, it's a common thing. I think some people get it from society, some people get it from their families, some people get it from both. Yeah. So. And it's so nice to join in a prompt like that when you created it. Yeah. Creating our own prompts is so great. Well, thank you so much. And now we have also Jennifer Legere here, who is the author of 16 books of poetry, if you include the new one just recently published, including Camille Mobilizes, published last year from Future Cycle Press, and this year's is... Uh, Trumped Up Election through Kai Draconist Books and Anarchist Press. Excellent. <laughs> we need more of that now. Um, her Pushcart Prize-nominated poetry primarily includes themes of her Italian ancestry, social justice and nature, and now um, anarchy, too. She has been recognized for her extensive social justice, environmental activism, and support for education in community colleges. And I think she's retired now, but she yes. did work for Hartnell College. Great. Thanks for being here. And would you be so kind to read what um, poem of yours appears in Portugal to review this, one, this spring? Thank you. This poem is entitled Reek. Conflagration to north and south consumes villages forests, coast chaparral. Flames sear, shut off all escape routes. Suburban homes, trapped cars incinerate. Black clouds devour, darkening horizon. Cooling ruins give up their dead, those trapped, cremated within their vehicles, caught in the fiery storm. Forensic archaeologists sift ash, retrieve DNA from splintered bones. Miles away, we offer condolences, savor a bittersweet gratitude for serendipitous exemption, our own arid wilderness already cauterized, scarred. Thank you. 
Was that about the um, Paradise Fire? Yes. Was that written in response yeah. to that? And my process is I'm usually working with a photograph, and I have, of course, you can't see it on a podcast. It's a photograph I took from behind my house when the ash was in the air, and you can see the red. And it just really, for me, invoked what we dealt with down on the Monterey Peninsula in 2016 with the Sobranos Fire. Yeah, and you really see how we're all connected with those fires when, oh. when the smoke comes down here. and Yeah, so and it's just an increasing escalating process with climate change yeah. and wildfires in California, mm-hmm. coupled with drought, which killed millions and millions of trees. So Yeah. Yeah. It was... I, I am so glad you wrote that because I hope we never forget. I hope we don't normalize it or forget yes. it. That was such a. I'm really glad that the magazine included that. Thank you. Thank you. It's really nice. Here we are on KSQD San Cruz 90.7, celebrating the spring publication of Portugal Review um, with some of the poets who appear in the 2019 issue, and we're lucky to have uh, Travis De Young here. Um, and he has a poem in this issue. Travis DeYoung served in the Marine Corps from 2007 to 2011 as an aviation supply specialist, and he was deployed to Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. He continues to work with veterans through his positions in the county Vet for Vets, Vets for Vets program, and the Veterans Artists Collective. Um, and he's been a real advocate for veterans' voices in the arts, and I'm looking forward to hearing your poem. Great. Thank you. Um, So this poem is called Guest. Um, His eyes were a frosted blue, full of emotions and stories I would never hear. After 11 months together in Iraq, he had more than earned my trust. He was welcomed into the home my wife and I shared. We offered him a room when life at the barracks was too depressing. We offered him support when the storm clouds gathered in his mind. We offered him our love when he felt overwhelmed by life's challenges. But no matter what we offered, there was still something missing, something we could not give, something he withheld from himself. And I will never forget the time I arrived home and saw him standing in the hallway, the empty bottle of pills at his feet the foggy and distant look in his eyes, and the words that stumbled from his mouth. Do you mind if I die in your house tonight? Wow, it's so... I'm so grateful for a voice for that poem. Thank you for writing that. Thank you very much. Did he survive? He did. Um, fortunately, my wife and I ended up rushing him to the hospital, and um, he had his stomach pumped and ended up surviving and lives in San Diego and is doing well. And um, and I wrote this poem um, as part of a veterans writing group that we were doing, and just kind of reflecting on the different challenges that were brought up by the military and the veteran suicide rate is a huge problem kind of across the board. Um, it's estimated that there's 22 veteran suicides a day. Um, and so I wrote this poem to kind of touch on my experience and just kind of give voice to the challenges that a lot of veterans face. And when you, so you wrote this in uh, a veterans writing group in response, did you know that this story was going to come out when you started the poem? Um, not exactly. Um, so the writing prompt that we did was uh, we read um, the poem Guest by Rumi, The Guest House. Um, and so the prompt was just think about someone who has been a guest in your house or a guest in your life. Um, and then this was kind of, you know, started thinking about the different roommates we had and people who've lived with us in the past. Um, and then this one really drew me in and then I kind of just explored from there. 
I'm really glad you're here. I left out a part of your bio where you and your wife were on a road trip, right, from South Carolina? Yeah, uh, North Carolina is okay. where I was stationed. And, and then fell in love with Santa Cruz and went to Cooperville. Yeah, kind of made our way out here after my enlistment and did a whole road trip, which is a big part of my healing process, kind of getting out of the military and reconnecting with nature and travel and community. And yeah. That's a sweet part of the story for some reason, given the whole context. It makes me really glad you're here. And it also makes me grateful for anthologies, right, where you get to hear all these different kinds of voices together. It's really a a joy, and I'm really glad you included that story in that poem. Thank you. Um, Next, we're going to hear from Robert Lisney. Um, She's the author of seven books. Um, she's an artist and energy medicine practitioner. As an EMP, Elisney's 30 years experience has helped others around the Bay Area and across the country by offering mediumistic readings and healing work to her clients. She's also a speaker, workshop leader, and keynote. Her latest book releases are Ceremonies for the Heart for Children and Adults and the Earth, Mosaic New and Collected Poems that contain some of her drawings and paintings, and her poetry has been published in North American Review, Porcupine Literary Arts, uh, the Bay Poetry Review, The Weekly Advocate, and other places. So welcome, Robin. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. So uh, I'm going to read the poem I have in Porter Gulch, and it's called Interviewing a Dead Raven. Look, since the beginning, all colors mixed to black. I used to like high towers where I see everything and gullies where people leave their trash. I ate other birds, but someone had to feed my young. I fly between worlds, disappear when I want to. If all that adds up to trickster, so be it. Hitchcock and I were old friends. He apprenticed as director in The Raven, and he met with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. They all agreed. My performance was so stunning to them. He cast me in The Birds. But make no mistake, he only captured my left side, never the right. It is a service to speak to the dead. Really, my portrayal was quite one-sided. My feathers are not oily. They only look as such. Call it my heat shield. I sit on the edges of volcanoes, you know, placed an ember in the sky, take myself right into the eye. Do you know the old story? I'm the one who brought back the sun, so you should thank me. Every word of the old story, everything about being scorched is true. When creation was formed and I was not yet molded to be me, something had to give. This is how my reputation was formed, from molding clay, the heat, compression, the fire, Voila. No one else could take it. Always there is gossip. Crow is jealous of my arrow tail. Though my body is limp and decomposes, my ghost flies between this realm and that one. I belong to no one, just an impartial messenger. What can I say? A free pass is a free pass. (laughs) <laughs> that's really nice to give the raven a voice he's been in so many places <laughs> odd birds so what was the process of writing that poem like for you well I actually it wrote it at Catamaran Writing Retreat um, down in Monterey and um, for people who don't know Catamaran is a local journal that you should definitely check out and they run an excellent retreat yes Stevenson Stevenson School Mm -hmm. yeah and um, I was studying with one of their teachers whose name is escaping me now um, but will come back to me in a moment (laughs) and uh, she gave us this prompt you know interview someone that's dead and she was thinking of a famous person or somebody that, you know, you would always admire or something. And I thought it was a fascinating prompt, and I had no idea who to interview. 
So I went to the library and I sat there and this raven came right in and it sat in the bush outside the window. Oh, and asked to be interviewed. And it, it was just like talking to me saying, interview me, I'm the best possible choice. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I'm also a medium helps because I, I do see, I do talk to people that have died. And so oh. I do that as a service to people and make a living doing that. So, oh, that's funny. I wonder so if, I was it Denusha who was your teacher? No. No, not to um, it was, um, That's funny to ha- give that prompt and have a medium in the class. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cheating. It's D- like, Danusha's friend and teacher. Um, Ellen? No. Not Ellen. Um, oh, Dorian. I don't know. Dorian. Oh, okay. Dorian oh, yeah. Lux. Oh, yes, fun. Dorian Lux. So yeah. she was our teacher for that um, program. And I hadn't studied with her before, but I was very inspired by her work. And yeah. So, yeah. She's inspired so many people. Isn't it great that three of these poems, right? Maybe four came from a prompt. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's hear hurrah for prompts. <laughs> you know, that really does it sometimes. It opens all doors. Yeah. Um, well, we're also here. I, I want to say there's some ambient noise. I hope that's going to work out for everyone on KSQD listening now. Um, uh, but we are in David Sullivan's uh, little house, and there's some traffic outside, so we're feeling very homey. Um, David Sullivan is kind well, we'll ask more what his role is in uh, Portugal's review, but he's involved. I want to introduce him and, and ask him to read a few things. Um, he teaches English and film at Cabrillo Community College in Santa Cruz, where he edits the Portugal Review with his students, and he serves on the Veterans Task Force Committee. He is the author of A Strong-Armed Angels from Hummingbird Press, Every Seed of Pomegranate from Tabat Bach, and Black Ice. Um, his chapbook, Take Wing, won the Mary Ballard Poetry Chapbook Prize, and he has co-translated a beautiful book of poems by the Iraqi poem Adnan al-Sayeg, um, and that book is called Bombs Have Not Breakfasted Yet. He's working on another book of translations by Chinese poets, I think, that we can talk to him about. Um, and he lives with the historian Sherry Barkey, and there are two really cute children, Jules and Amina, in this very nice house. Um, thanks for letting us be here. Um, and I'd coming. love to hear what you're working on um, now, and maybe some of your new work, and maybe some translation, if you would like to. Um. Sure, I'd be happy to. Actually, I got, I'm back teaching, uh, this year, but last year I had a sabbatical year off, and I'd written, um, Every Seed of the Pomegranate, uh, based on the stories of my vet students at Cabrillo, and I started to try to understand the stories they were telling me, and after a while I began to also want to understand the Iraqi perspective. So, um, that was a little harder to find, but, Thanks to the internet, there are you know blogs and Skype and other ways to be in contact. Um, and so over the last year, I wrote a long narrative poem. Um, it's a 300-page poem based on the Gilgamesh epic about the friendship between an Iraqi interpreter and a U.S. soldier. Um, so ex-soldiers like Travis, we, we met and had lunch together recently, partly because I just need to keep understanding more about the things I'm trying to write about, which I have no background with. I've never been in the military. I don't know Arabic. I've never been to Iraq. Um, So it's a very kind of uh, humbling thing to try and enter this realm. Um, After I... um, I've sent that manuscript off to various Iraqis and vets that I know, and I'm getting feedback. And uh, one of them, uh, an Iraqi named Kadem Kanhar, said... um, you know, it'd be great if you, I know you're working on translating some of my poems, co-translating, because I don't speak Arabic with others. Um, but he said, it'd be great if we started writing poems together. And I'll write a poem and you write a poem, maybe in response to each other. We'll get them in English and in Arabic, and we'll publish the book without either of her names on it. To mess with the notion of ownership and authorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. We've been kind of trading poems back and forth. Um, so I thought I'd read... Uh, translation, co-translation that I did with Abbas Kadim of one of his, and then maybe one of the poems that we've been writing together. Oh, excellent. Wow. Okay. So this is called Breaking News, Mass Grave Found Near by Kadim Kanhar. Yesterday I went to the coroner's office. 
They asked for a DNA sample and told me they had found some unidentified bones. Every time I hear that, I rotate on the knife of hope, like a stuck orange. I am home now, brother, dusting the plastic flowers around your photo, wetting them with tears. The medical report says the sack of bones I signed for are you. Too little. I empty them on the table, catalog them again. A skull, a clavicle, three ribs, a shattered femur, a pile of metacarpi, and a dice roll of vertebrae. How can these be my brother? But the medical report confirms it is. I put the bones back in the sack, dust off my hands, blow the remainder from the table, hoist you on my back, and leave. On the bus, I place you next to me and pay for two seats. Yes, I'm paying this time. I'm old enough to carry you on my back and pay your fare. I do not inform anyone what I've received. I watched your wife and children pass by the couch where I've set you down. I want one of them to open the sack, to see you one last time, but you're stubborn to the bone. Later, they wonder about the wet marks on the couch. For an hour, I had arranged the wet bones in a makeshift coffin, trying to complete you. Only the shiny nail heads knew that this was too little. Oh, beautiful. If you're just joining us, uh, we are um, celebrating the spring issue of Porter Gulch Review here on KSQD Santa Cruz. And that was David Allen Sullivan reading um, a poem he translated by an Iraqi poet. Uh, and it was just beautiful. Mm. What are, uh, what's Arabic like to translate, or what's the process? So you're working with uh, someone who reads Arabic, because right. I was looking over your shoulder, so, <laughs> and I could see, like, for one thing, it's justified to write, and it starts with quotes, and mm-hmm. what's the grammar, is the grammar really different? Because so that works so with, well in English. Yeah, I'm working with Abbas Kadim, um, who, who actually lives in Washington, D.C., um, and is very fluent in both languages. And so it was Anan al Saig who said, oh, can you work with Abbas? Because he's got them in English, yeah. but they're not quite poems yet. Yeah. So he put me together with Abbas. And then we've been working together. Um, he's a busy man, so we work when we can. Um, and do you work over Skype or just over phone? or Mostly it's uh, phone and email, okay. uh, occasionally Skype. Uh, I went out and, and got to do a presentation with him at Split This Rock, uh, Poetry of Witness, um, last spring out in Washington. Mm-hmm. So we got to have some time together. Um, but mostly it's just, you know, exchanging things back and forth and he'll send me something and I'll send it back and I'll say, you know, did I get it right? And I'll say, well, mostly. (laughs) And then he'll gently correct me and steer me. Um, so it's very much kind of a collaborative process going back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, it's never come to fisticuffs. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of ownership with that. No, no it was actually very powerful. Um, Abbas got to read that poem in Arabic when we were together at Split This Rock. Wow. And by the end, he was in tears. And somebody in the audience said, what is it like to read that? And he says, every family has these stories. Yeah. Every one of us. And for a poet to put it into words, to... Mm put into gentle words a horrible thing yeah to have it be beautiful as well as tragic yeah to have the he said was just really it. moved him um, while he was reading it yeah Arabic um yeah those images of the bones on the couch and the butt and buying the bus seat for his brother that's a just a gorgeous and sophisticated poem that's really nice yeah he's a very activist poet in uh Iraq and he's done poetry in minefields. So Kadim has been a very um, active critic of the various governments in uh, Iraq, and he is um, part of the Cultural of Ministry, which is poets trying to recite poems in unusual places, like an active minefield that they will go and recite poems in, uh-huh. in a ambulance, in a hospital. Um, trying to make poetry a part of the momentum for change. And he says, reclaiming his country. Wow, what um, a good man. 
It's quite something. Yeah. And so we've actually been trading poems back and forth. So the poem I'm going to read now is one that might be part of a book we're trying to collaborate, um, both writing poems and somewhat in response to each other. This one's called Interrogation, Baghdad. So is this one that... Is this, this a collaboration or one you've written in response to something he's written? I wrote in response okay, to something he wrote. Yeah. Right, I know you're not using names and stuff. So. Interrogation, Baghdad. Why have you hidden the man's face? The paintings of the horse, not the man. Why is his cuff frayed? Does he represent the poor? He's a farmer. He is poor. Why did you paint the horse with nostrils flared? Horses widen their nostrils when smelling. Why is its teeth bared? It's lipping up the fig from the man's hand. Why does the horse's cheek strain? Its muscles are working, extending around the brown fist of the fig. You've shown the ribs of its chest. Yes, a horse has ribs. Its eye seems crazed. Crazed is in the beholder's eye. But it looks out of the canvas at us. While I painted, the horse noticed me. Then you admit it's about duplicity. It's about a horse, a fig, a man. You've left out the artist. I try not to be in my work. So you admit you're in hiding. I admit it's a painting. Do not leave the country in case you're wanted for further inquiry. Then do not take the country from me. What was that? Or the horse, or the man. Do you want to go hungry? I want to grow kinder. Oh my goodness, that was just beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. Um, what an amazing um, format to have an interviewer and an artist. Did that come out of the... Or was, it, was the format in any way in response to his poem? More about the number of Iraqis I've talked to that talk about being interrogated and what okay. it feels like. And it's, it's on both sides. It would be allied forces interrogating them, often um, without them being able to understand what caused it or, or what the reason was that it happened. Um, but also, militias will pick you up and interrogate you, and, and the militias are notorious for kidnapping and, and um, getting for money. Um, and the government itself has people. Um, so even though things have changed from Saddam the feeling that you are constantly having to watch yourself, that you don't know when you'll be stopped and questioned, is is there all the time. Yeah. yeah. And to question an artist that way about what he made and his the way he's subversive there in the end, it's really amazing. Yeah, that's... Was it based on a... Um, is it acrostic at all, or did you make up the horse and the fig? Um, when I visited Adnan in London, he had a painting by a famous Iraqi painter on the wall, and we started talking about that work, um, and now I've been in touch with the painter. So that was in my head, and I, I can see his images change, and um, he did more abstract work and during the Saddam years, and he's now returned to doing more pictorial hard edge. He does some of soldiers that are really devastating. So I just thought about how he had to shift his art as he felt more um, inspected. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it, the huh. genesis. Um, can we switch a little bit to talking about Porter Gulch Review mm, and sure. your role there? Now that we, we, I feel like that was a nice introduction of yourself as a writer. Um, although you're working on so many things, it would be fun to talk about more. But one of the things you work on is Portugal Tribute. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process? Who's choosing the poems and how is that magazine made? Um, and fiction and art. Yes. Right, yeah. It's a um, variety of things get sent to us, usually around 350 to 400 submissions a semester. Um, comes in December 1st every year, and then um, I collate it, put it into Google Docs, and then when the students come in, they signed up for um, an introduction to literature class, editing the Portugal to Review. Um, and really, right from the start, they have to start scoring poems and prose and screenplays and short plays. 
um, and trying to then articulate their vision of what this issue should look like. They all read last year's issue, um, and I say you have to do better than that. Um, uh, and they try to collectively come up with a vision. So this year they said they wanted more foreign languages, they wanted more diversity, they wanted to express the political climate, they wanted to um, have poems about the Me Too movement, they wanted more veterans uh, to show up. Um, and so they begin to create a vision and then they have to collectively start to choose the pieces that will make it in. Um, so it's um, a back and forth process of them educating themselves about what does make a good poem or a piece of prose um, and then advocating for the ones that they really like. And um, at first they often come in saying, well, it's all subjective, this is just... Um, but then I point out, if you look at past issues, the same names will occur over and over again. And I say, what's happening there? And they begin to understand that there's a level of craft. And sure, after that point, it is a level of whether you feel moved by a piece or how it strikes you. Um, but there is a level of that kind of uh, quality of writing, of attention to the details. Um, so yeah, bit by bit they get kind of ownership over it. It's always good when at some point they say, no, you're wrong, we like this poem, and we're going to publish it. And I have to say, okay. Um, and I'm willing to argue with them, so I will tell them my opinion, but they often overrule me, and it's and always a good sign. Is it a, like a Quaker collaborative? It's, you make it sound like they're all working... Um, working so, collectively, yes. We're okay. trying to come to consensus. How many students are in that 28 class? students. Okay, and 28 students can can do that? Come up with a... They work yes. together? With yeah. no... Uh, well, there's certainly conflicts. Okay. <laughs> there was one year they said, well, if we're going to show artwork with naked women, we have the same number of naked men. And okay. so they, they <laughs> made that decision. <laughs> um, Fair. That seems like I mean, when I took this over it's about 18 years ago now, um, I said to the college, can they make the, all the decisions and no censorship? And they said yes. And I tell them, I, I trust that over... If all of 28 of you are going to get together and make a decision, you're going to collectively make good decisions. Um, and sometimes they had to argue about, is this piece racist? Should we publish it or not? There's a piece in here that's about a Trump supporter. And they said, we want this represented, even if we disagree with it, um, that we should have these different viewpoints. Um, so it's always interesting to hear the discussion, but they really start to, after a while, go, oh, this is our issue, and we want it to look this way. Um, so that's great, and they're and they're looking excited um, May 18th to meet some of the local writers that will be coming and reading. And did the students take the class just once? There's nobody in there who's taken it twice. Uh, occasionally, there is somebody who wants to TA and will come back. Um, Lisa Brenner uh, volunteered to help me out this year. Um, it's been wonderful to have another person on who's kind of been through the process. Oh, okay, yeah. she's done it before. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD San Cruz Community Radio on 90.7. Um, and we're here in Not Quite Live because we're pre-recording in David Sullivan's living room. I'm Lisa Allen Ortiz hosting this week. Um, and I have here now uh, five poets who um, have will appear in the spring issue um, because we just were joined by Kate Abraham and we're going to hear from her. Kate Abraham is a poet, children's author, art enthusiast, and former children's librarian. She's the author of Joey's Way and What Will You Be, Sarah Me. Her poems have been published in various anthologies, journals, and magazines, and she was a finalist for the Pablo Neruda Poetry Prize from Nimrod. Kate is an active advocate of art therapy and is on the board of the Mental Health Client Action Network. She's also the founder of Blue Moon Creations, a nonprofit artistic endeavor that aids charities both nationally and internationally. And she lives in San Cruz. Kate, welcome. I'm so Thank glad you, you're Lisa. here. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Um, uh, I'd like to read the poem that will appear in PGR. It's called Clinging. And the, there is an epigraph. I am daily learning to be the reluctant guardian of your memories. And that's by Richard Ratliff. Clinging. An avocado will not turn dark as long as the flesh is connected to the pit. Even if you cut it open, expose the soft fruit to air or eat part of it, what remains 
nestled against its seed, stays tender and green for a while. I think of this as I watch you cling to the core of yourself, fight to remember where your shoes are, the name of that man next door, or how to saute an onion in butter. And sometimes when too much is asked, you wear that bruised expression, as if the pit had been extracted and you fear darkness will spoil everything. Thank you. That's really nice. Thank you. And what was the process of that writing that? Like, were you the uh, This process for this poem was first an emotional moment, a, a, a moment of feeling pain, of uh, seeing a, a loved one, you know, forgetting. Yeah. And then um, in this case, I just. I was in the kitchen cutting an avocado. So both of those things happened simultaneously on the same day, and it, the poem came to me very strongly. So yeah. It was kind of a little form of therapy for myself as well. Yeah. So. I think that, I mean, those poems that come from emotional yeah. moments like that are, I love when they can carry that through. Right. Um, with emotion and image. Thank yeah. you. That's so. It's always a gift when you get something like that because it it helps you to deal with what you're dealing with. Yeah, and sometimes it helps others. So that's the whole. One of the one of the students in the class, uh, they write, uh, they choose a piece to write about, and they get to interview the author. And the um, student who's writing about that poem Mm -hmm. um, talked a lot about dealing with uh, their um, grandparent going through this and how much it. it, It was a very moving interchange with him on the phone. Yeah. Because we talked at great depth. And so, yes, the poem had already made a difference, and that was important. Yeah, and how nice to be able to move, to speak with a reader that was moved by your work. That's such a rare Right, and a young person who had the other perspective because it was his grandmother. So you see, you know, if we speak out about difficult things... It, we can help each other. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. That's very true. Thank you. What's your relationship with Portugal Review? Have you appeared in it before? I have. Okay. Yeah. And um, I wanted to ask you guys all that eventually at some point. Maybe when I come around to just know like how you heard about it and what your relationship with this. I feel like it's a journal that a lot of us have a lot of affection for because it's been so stalwart and it just seems so related to the community. When did you last appear in it? Uh, I think two, not last year, but the year before, before that. Okay. Yeah. And so you can speak to how beautiful the reading is at the Horticultural Center this year. It's will be always, on May 18th. It's very special. It's yeah. really nice. And you get to meet the young people that have been working on the review as well. So mm-hmm. It's really a celebration. So I hope everyone can make it May 18th at seven from 7 to 9 at Cabrillo. Um, I wanted to ask the poets who are here to read something else that they've been working on. And um, if it's okay, we'll just start uh, with Victoria, since she's sitting closest to me here in David Sullivan's living room. Um, and I don't, you, you, it's nice to just read it and we can talk about it afterwards, but if you want to say something about it, if it's okay. new, you can start there. Yeah, this piece is called Comfort Food, um, and it's about my mother. And it also has a little bit of avocados and guacamole. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Don't eat it caliente, ama warns as I grab a golden brown empanada from the tray that just emerged from the oven. I toss the pumpkin turnover from one hand to the next like a hot potato. You're going to get a stomachache, she shouts, her brows furrowed. But I don't listen. Before ama can snatch the empanada... It's pinched folds oozing with dark, sugary pumpkin filling. I dart away and bite into the soft pastry, my tongue burning with delight as I chew and swallow. Always boil the water before you put the beans in the pot, she instructs, while we clean and sort through a pile of pintos, removing pebbles and broken beans. It's very important or else the beans will come out talludos. Cook the beans on low heat and keep the lid closed and never add salt until the beans are fully cooked, she adds. When I make guacamole for the first time, Ama approves but offers a few tips. Mmm, it's very good. Tiene buen sabor. 
Just dice the tomatoes and onions a little smaller next time, she says. And don't forget to save the pits and add them to the dip. It helps retain the guacamole's freshness. When I go away to college, Ama sends me Federal Express packages of gorditas and flour tortillas. My roommate Alicia rips open one of my shipments before I can get to the box. With a half-eaten floury disc in hand, she apologizes with a contrite grin. I couldn't wait, she says. You don't mind, do you? We laugh as we dig into the package, sinking our teeth into the sweet, soft biscuits. You don't say. Ama sounds incredulous over the phone when I report that Alicia and I ate the whole box. Three dozen gorditas in less than five days. <laughs> Ay, muchachas, you're going to get sick, she exclaims, pretending to be alarmed, but I can detect a gleam in her voice. As I get older and gather cooking tips and recipes from the internet, magazines, and books, I share these with Ama. I read that when you make enchiladas, you're supposed to strain the chile after you puree it, I tell her over the phone. Ama is silent for a moment. Ah, see, some people do that, but not me. I don't mind the chile flakes. But yes, some people strain the chile mixture. I don't mind the flakes either, I say. I think they give the enchiladas more flavor. Ama is pleased with my response. Ah, si, yo creo que si. When my brother and I become vegetarians, Ama adjusts her recipes. She prepares only cheese-filled enchiladas and tamales. Fíjate que I never like the meat ones anyways, she says. She starts using vegetable shortening instead of lard and eliminates chicken bouillon from her rice and soups. Ama tastes my spicy meatless pozole, prepared with sautéed zucchini, yellow squash, and chayote instead of pork or chicken. Está muy bueno, mija, muy bueno. Even better than regular pozole, she compliments my dish. Ama's body is arthritic and tired now. Her rolling pin and electric tortilla maker gathering dust and cobwebs languishing in dark cupboards along with dozens of other forgotten kitchen appliances and cooking utensils. Her big and wide plastic green bowl, the one in which she once emptied bags of flour and mercilessly kneaded and pounded mountains of dough, is now a receptacle for lemons, avocados, ketchup bags, expired coupons, and old bills. <laughs> I gather her food recipes and write them down. Tortillas, gorditas, empanadas, pan dulce, capirotada, enchiladas, guisado de nopales, tamales, sopa de gato. I estimate the measurements because Ama doesn't think in teaspoons or tablespoons or cups or quarts or liters or pounds. About approximately how much baking powder, I ask with pen and paper in hand. Una cucharadita, just a small spoonful, she replies. I frown. Like this, or like that, or more like this. I show her my array of measuring spoons, but Ama's vision is not so good anymore, so I bring the little assortment of spoons to her lap. She observes and feels the plastic white spoons that fit neatly into each other like Russian dolls. More like this one, she says, holding the teaspoon, while the rest of the fastened spoons dangle and sway like the pendulum of a grandfather clock. I scribble down the measurements and type and print the recipes. But in time, I forget about the stained, creased pages of my recipe binder, just like Ama. I learn to estimate the measurements. On a cold, wintry night during Christmas break, I find a recipe on the internet and make atole de guayaba for my Ama. As she dozes off watching a telenovela in the living room, I boil and blend the aromatic guavas then strain the pink paste, trapping the hard white seeds in the metal strainer. When I bring my ama her cup of atole, she is slouched on the sofa. A crocheted beige beanie covers her head, while a checkered flannel blanket warms her torso and legs. The billowing steam from the mug moistens her paper-thin skin and weathered face as she inhales and tastes the sweet smell of guavas. With eyes that still sparkle, she asks for the ingredients, and I tell her, guavas, milk, cinnamon, sugar, cornstarch, salt, baking powder. Baking powder? Really? How much, she asks. 
Una cucharadita. Just a small spoonful, I reply. As my mamá and I drink our hot and thick milky beverages, we share recipes and stories well into the chilly night. The sweet aroma of guavas and cinnamon warming our stomachs and hearts. With each sip that we taste and each story that we share, Ama and I savor heaping cucharaditas and overflowing cupfuls of comfort and love. Oh, I love her so much. That is just delightful. Thank you. I know when Kate and I were getting texts, I was like, you boil the beans first? You boil the water first? I did not know that. It makes me hungry. I have no idea. I know. That's delightful. Thank you. I have so many questions I want to ask you about um, fiction and poetry, but I want to have time to um, hear another poem from other people. Um, So, Jennifer, can you read us something? Um, I'll share something from um, my next the last published book, uh, Camille Mobilizes. This is, uh, uh, I have a trilogy of these. Um, Camille is sort of a recovering Catholic. Actually, what she is is my alter ego. All the things I have never had the courage to be sort of out there. And in the final volume, Camille Mobilizes, she's part of a resistance movement, so she's pretty fiery. Uh, This one's entitled The Night the Muse Dumped You, and it's for all those poets out there. Camille has nothing. Imagination's needle on empty. She reads, revises, discards, pounds, flaccid keyboard, prays for a miracle. She has exceeded her creative shelf life. Now it's nothing but rejects from English majors enrolled in literary magazine two to fluff their own vita. Didn't I warn you, sneers a sadistic inner Nazi who taunts by revealing the virginal page she will never deflower. Her dominatrix muse bends Camille over the desk, uncoils a dark whip, Flourishes red ink editorial pen makes her aching soul suffer. <laughs> oh, I'm going to read that book. That is really funny. That is so voicey and funny. Oh gosh, yeah, we've been there. Thank you. Um, that was Jennifer Leger, um, who's a contributor to the Spring Portugal Review that we're celebrating here on KSQD poetry hive collective and i want to make sure we hear from travis de young um here's another poem that he that's recent um so this pro yeah this poem is called i promise uh, it was a poem i wrote for my wife if i should breathe my last breath before you i promise i will become the wind and kiss you with each passing breeze If the candle of my life should be extinguished before yours, I promise I will become the fire in our hearth and warm you on cold nights. If my body should return to the earth before yours, I promise I will become a great tree and give you relief from the harsh sun. If I should return to the cosmic ocean before you, I promise I will become the waters of the earth and nourish you when you thirst. If I never die... I promise I will love you each day, for how could a love as timeless as ours ever end? Yeah. I love the part about if I never die at the end. That's a surprising thing. Didn't you win the um, love poem contest? I did, no? and I didn't, I didn't tell her when I submitted this either. Oh, oh was that the poem that won? Yeah, that's oh, the poem okay. that won. So, <laughs> so did she just see it published in the newspaper? Uh, no, I told her after it got published. Oh, I was like, yeah. so, you know that poem. <laughs> <laughs> that is really sweet. Thank you so much. Um, Robert Lisney, can we hear a poem from you? Also a Portable right. Review um, contributor and just going to read recent work. Right. This is uh, for the Dakota 38, December 26, 1862. In Mankato, Minnesota, at the memorial that is left, marking the place by the river where they were hung, the sandbar where they were buried in a mass grave, the grave floats like a rising corpse, then disappears again. 
If you listen carefully, you can still hear the warriors singing their death song as their families, soldiers, and settlers look on as their feet pounded out their march to the gallows. In the snow and wind the day after Christmas, you can still hear them cry out to the Creator, their jailed women trilling and singing with them. Wood on wood scrapes as the executioners pull the levers, then silence as their sudden drop slashes a terrible hole in the fabric of all we are. Beautiful, thank you. Another poem that just, well, I guess this didn't appear in Portugal's review, but I'm so, I'm so grateful right now to be in this room with all these voices and stories. Um, it's wonderful to have an anthology all the time to hear different stories. Uh, was that written in, did you visit there? It has a very place. Uh, it has, yeah, I was, um, a Sundancer in South Dakota and, uh, back in the early 90s and, this memorial is in a town where one of my friends from high school lives, and I was visiting her, and I knew the memorial was there. And I, when I went to visit it, I was just overwhelmed. And so I, I left my Sundance regalia, which are, you know, sage crowns and bracelets. I left them on the memorial. Mm-hmm. And um, this poem had bubbled up over several years, and I just recently wrote it. But... Um, it's a it's a fact of history that Lincoln was the one who um, who condemned these Dakota Thirty Eight who were really just fighting for their land, and it's a smudge on our whole collective inheritance how this occurred, and um, the pictures of it are really startling because uh, you can see hundreds and hundreds of white settlers around cheering them on, you know, and then you you know these women are in the jail cells behind them, their their wives, their children. And um, having been in ceremony, I know what happens when someone dies. They're singing the dust song, and then the women are trilling and singing with them. So it brought together my experience of um, doing going to memorials in South Dakota and being a part of the Lakota tradition and being a part of that um, culture, yeah. So, and it, I, it sounds like from the poem that the great the mass grave is on a sandbar. That the, they buried them in the river oh. on a mass grave, and you know, from our perspective, to bury anybody in the river is, oh, no. is, is terrible because, of course, the decor, the decayed corpses are going to affect the water. So it's such a metaphor for what happened with the settlers and my ancestors actually lived in that part of Minnesota and one of my relatives was killed by the by the Dakota um, but I leave I have no uh, angst about that I feel like somebody had to go because they were the ones <laughs> invading you know so um, but but that that memorial to the Dakota 38 was a con- collaborative with the ministers, the Dakota, the people of the community to reconcile and recognize that this was a terrible smudge on their on their town and on our history, our collective history. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you for that poem. Yeah. Um, Kate Abraham, can you read a poem? And I think that will be um, the final poem of this hour here with um, the contributors to Portugal Review. Don't forget to go here, everybody, on the 18th. Um, This poem is called The Night Before the Women's March, 2019. Late night opens its dark, ravenous mouth, swallows the almost full moon. Wrapped in shadows, I dream I am holding the limp bodies of children who died at the southern border. I swaddle them in linen, place them gently back into the arms of their distraught parents. Startled, I awaken, damp with sweat and tears, recognize this wall of grief is the same one I couldn't climb over for a long time when my own son died. How can I say I'm sorry 
apologize for a nation that has torn itself apart with disregard for the sanctity of all lives. Only 5 a.m., I rise up from bed, put my hiking boots, pink hat, and what would MLK do sign by the front door. Later, when I leave for the march, I know I will carry the weight of those children along the streets of my hometown. Thank you, Pete. That's really nice. Thank you, everyone, for being here. That's our hour. Um, really grateful to Portugal for you. you. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Oh, we're here. Okay. Thank you. Enjoy Santa Cruz, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>